นโมทัสสะภะคะวะอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุตหะสัมนโมทัสสะภะคะวะอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุตหะสัมนโมทัสสะภะคะวะอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุตหะสัมพุทธังดามังสังขังนามัสสะ
cultivating. We're used to going to lectures and acquiring information on a topic and we're used to perhaps listening to sermons where we're told how it is and expected to believe and accept. And But in the case of a Dhamma talk, what is on offer is an invitation to share an inquiry, to engage a contemplation together. There are questions, there are really important questions that we all share. We share an interest and following those questions until we reach resolution. And so if we understand that there's nobody here telling us what we're supposed to believe, there is an encouragement to follow a train of thought and inquiry, but to follow that in a helpful way, it's useful if we can just, as I said, suspend uh, our agreeing and disagreeing. It's not, as it might first appear, abdicating, going along with, believing. It's just saying, for the sake of experiment, we'll just take this in and then afterwards we'll ponder it and maybe question it and parts that we'll make a point of holding on to and taking further and other parts maybe we put aside and don't pay any attention to and that's fine. So this evening, being the first Sunday of the month of September, as is the custom in the Runaratnagiri Monastery, we we pick up this Dhamma teaching that's on the page of our Forest Sangha calendar. And, and in this case, it's a teaching by Ajahn Chah and a photograph of Ajahn Vimalo. And he's uh, there with a very refined mold that he's cast. Uh, as you may or may not know, Ajahn Vimalo is a uh, highly skilled uh, sculptor and he was doing a piece of work for the, the uh, nursing kuti that they've been building at Amrawati, where Ajahn Sumaita was going to spend time. And, and, and the Dhamma teaching there is Ajahn Chah talking about uh, generosity. And in the quoted teaching it says, in cultivating generosity we cleanse our hearts of selfishness. Selfish people experience extreme suffering. They don't really care about themselves. They don't love themselves. So this is specifically addressing the force or the the virtue of generosity. In this case, talking about how what a cleansing force it is, what a transformative power it is when it comes to uh, encountering, dealing with uh, selfishness and, and cultivating generosity, we cleanse our hearts from selfishness. Now, when we read this or we hear it, <clears throat> there's two ways of 
receiving it. We could receive it in somewhat moral philosophical statement. We're considering moral philosophy, we're getting selfishness, generosity, have this way of working together and selfishness leads to serious suffering and it's not a good idea and generosity is helpful and so we could hear it in that way and think about it be informed by those concepts there's another way of hearing these teachings and that's what I'd like to consider this evening and it's I think probably Ajahn Chah was was skilled at addressing both levels but uh, would like to think that we would hear it on the more subtle level and that is where we're encouraged to really look closely at our inner experience until we see directly the suffering of selfishness, not just allowing our attention to fall short of the reality of the suffering of selfishness and rest on the concept. We can do that. If our attention just goes as far as the concept of suffering, the concept of selfishness, and stay there, not go any deeper, well, we don't really get the message. We're not really learning Similarly, the, the actuality of generosity and how that impacts on selfishness. What is the dynamic? What is the reality? What is the actuality of generosity? As a concept, that's one thing. Yes, our attention goes as far as thinking. That's one thing. But as a, I've mentioned many times before, and as our teachers have reminded us over and over again, studying about reality, that's the handshake. That's not the relationship. That's just the introduction. That's the road code. That's not learning to drive. That's not the journey. It's certainly not arriving at the rest of the destination. And what's the point of learning the road code if you're not going to drive, you're not going to arrive anywhere? Well, it's got some value because it gives us potential and we can move on from that. So uh, learning about Dhamma, learning about reality is is never wasted. But it's not the point. That's not not the meal. Recipe books have got their place. Our kitchen manager is very keen on gathering recipes and, and Sri Lankans and Thais and Burmese people come here I'm aware that he he questions them about what they cook and asks them for recipes and he gathers all these recipes. And But gathering the recipes is not the point. That's just so that later on he can cook something. Even that's not the point. The point is that we eat. And even eating is not the point. The point is being nourished. That's the point. And so these teachings uh, Ajahn Chah is giving, as with all Dhamma teachings. In cultivating generosity, we cleanse our hearts of selfishness. That's a hint 
in the direction in which uh, Ajahn Chah wants us to look. So we come to see, come to feel, come to really feel what it's like. What is this suffering of selfishness? You know, like many times we've all heard about the Four Noble Truths and any of the authentic schools of Buddhism uh, reference the Four Noble Truths as the foundation teaching. They need to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. And what are they about? They're all about suffering. But many people, they hear these teachings and say, well, I'm not suffering, this is, this is not for me. Yeah, give me love and light, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah. Well, why would you be looking for love and light if you're not suffering? Yeah. Actually, we are interested in love and light, we're interested in feeling good, we're interested in happiness, we're interested in developing peacefulness, uh, joy. And we're interested in these, but these are just, in a way, like gathering recipes. Yeah. All of those are in service of preparing us to be able to see what the Buddha saw and all the great realized beings saw, which is the reality of suffering. Learning about, cultivating, preparing ourselves, uh, uh, other aspects of of the path of practice, that's that's really like learning to read. And what is it that we read? Well, we read our own hearts. And what is it we're interested in reading? We're interested in reading when there's suffering and what is the cause of suffering and is there a way of being free from suffering so when people hear the Buddha's teaching on suffering and they dismiss it because it's not relevant well in a way it's because they haven't learned to read yet all the preparations that we do have a point all the cultivation of loving kindness compassion empathetic joy equanimity generosity patience Determination, renunciation, honesty, all of these have a point, but they are all still supportive conditions that prepare consciousness, discipline attention, so that it's ready that in a moment of suffering, in a moment when our attention collapses and we indulge in clinging, that we're there for it and we see it. There's the cause of suffering. If we're there at the moment when suffering happens, when we see that we're the agents of our own suffering, we're the authors of this ordeal that we're having to endure, it's not happening to us, we are doing it. We're active as the authors of this experience that we're having to try and untangle. When we see that, if we're there for it in the moment... Then we also get the, the really helpful message that if we see that we're doing it, we immediately recognise, well, we don't have to do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, because most people don't have even an intuition of the first noble truth, that is the reality of suffering. Yeah. Many of us, I'm sure, spent lots of our early life distracting ourselves Fascinating information about all sorts of things, including even fascinating information about Buddhism and about other religions and about things we can be doing uh, uh, and, and holidays we can go on and 
treats we can give ourselves, food we can eat, and conversations we can have, and uh, a lot of it may be quite neutral, but uh, to varying degrees also a lot of it is really distracting ourselves. Uh, I was talking at the meal this morning in response to a question that somebody asked about boredom, and that really if we can get interested in boredom, then there's a lot we can learn. What we learn when we get interested in boredom is that actually boredom is a subtle form of resentment for not getting our own way. What's happening right now is not interesting to me. It doesn't suit me. And so we don't have gross rage, that's something else. Well, we might have that, but that's not boredom. Boredom is a subtle form of resentment, subtle form of ill will towards not having anything interesting happening. And if we can see that and we get a handle on it, we realize again, or we have the opportunity to realize how addicted we are to distraction. Whenever we start to become bored, we distract ourselves. We've got to look at our smartphone go somewhere, eat something, listen to something, talk to somebody, anything other than just be there and examine what it is we're doing, how it is we're doing what we're doing, that keeps us always busy. Mm -hmm. Keeps us always following and perpetuating what is, as Ajahn Chah would want us to see, actually the activity of selfishness. Selfishness is not just being mean and stingy, that's one expression of selfishness, but a deeper and perhaps more useful way of contemplating selfishness is to get a reading on this momentum of activity which could be described as me and my way. Always keeps us busy. And boredom is an excellent teaching when we get bored it's not too much dramatic activity happening we're not hopefully not too depressed just enough frustration if we've got interest we can see right there and then feeling driven to do something driven to go and get something driven driven to become something driven to get rid of something that feeling driven is it's not wrong or bad, it's just not intelligent. It's just not productive if what we're looking for is real, unshakable contentment. Again, at the meal this morning, I was referring to that state of heart, state of mind that the Buddha referred to as unshakable or nakampati, is the word that he uses in the discourse on the greatest blessings, the Maha uh, Mangala Sutta. Uh, um, Puttasa loka dhammehi chittang yasang nakampati asokang virajang kiamang etang mangala mutamang. This comes right at the end of this, these various stanzas the Buddha talks about, how to live skillfully, how to cultivate a steadiness of heart and mind so that we can read the Four Noble Truths, we can read 
suffering. We can see what suffering really is. And up until that point, we think that maybe suffering is something that somebody else is responsible for or something somebody's doing to us. Yeah. Um, and we don't really get the experience, that we don't get the message that suffering is something that's being done right here and now. It's something that's happening as a result of this activity of clinging. There can be pain that arises as a result of past action. That's true. That's called kama vipaka. The kama is the intentional action we performed in the past and it can result in kama vipaka, which can be suffering, pain, right here and now. Or it can be happiness right here and now. It can be directly as a result of intentional activities in the past, depending on whether they were skillful or unskillful. And so that pain can be caused by the past, but whether that pain turns into suffering or not depends on something extra that we are doing right here and now. Yeah? Whether we're pushing it away or pulling towards it, this pushing and pulling, liking and disliking, accepting or rejecting, agreeing and disagreeing, picking and choosing. Yeah, saying in the beginning with listening to a Dhamma talk we want to just suspend that activity of pushing and pulling agreeing and disagreeing yeah. not as a willful act but as a as a skillful experiment so as to be simply receptive say, what is it like to just receive experience and, yeah. now to the degree that we don't know how to do that well we recognize that there's training to be done. And so once again, over many people, when they hear the Buddha's teaching the Four Noble Truths about suffering, say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, it applies to all of us. We wouldn't be so busy, we wouldn't be so addicted, we wouldn't be so distracted if we were not caught up in selfishness, in this compulsive being compulsively enslaved and driven by conditioned momentum and me and my way. But as I was saying, as soon as we see it, we also see there's the option, there's the possibility of not doing it. At least there's the confidence that it's possible, the faith even, if we want to use that word. Mm-hmm. And great energy can come from that prior to that we often feel that we're victims and so we're not victims of our suffering we're perpetrators of it so if we get interested in it mm-hmm. the reality the dynamic instead of just thinking about it as moral philosophy or an interesting idea but we start to feel it in the whole body what is it when this I want or I don't want Mm. maybe a a painful memory arises and I don't want to have to think about that do we have the developed sensitivity to be able to receive that perception whatever that was that we're remembering that's gone, that's in the past there's probably nobody else in the world thinking about 
what we're thinking about. Uh, we're completely alone in thinking about it, and here we are suffering over something that's completely been and gone. It's in the past. And what is that experience of suffering? Not as a mental speculation or description or analysis or proliferation, but as a felt experience in the whole body-mind. When our guts contract or, or our jaw becomes tense or, or maybe our forehead or, or our shoulders tense up and up round our ears you know, stressing ourselves if we don't know how to read the reality of suffering as it's happening in the moment then we're not going to be in a position to see the causal conditions so if we do get to see this, if we are able to access sufficient stillness of heart and mind and body to be able to see suffering happening, a contraction around a painful memory, we're not going to necessarily be able to get rid of the pain, but we, yeah, that which we add extra, if we're sufficiently present for that, and we get interested in it, well, how can we... What can we do about that? How do we inhibit? How do we inhibit that contraction? That means we breathing shallow, we get hot, the heart rate increases, and we're compounding. In worst case scenario, we re-traumatize ourselves, and, and that happens. It's, when it happens in the context of deep meditation, that's genuinely regrettable because... You know, trauma at any stage has got serious consequences when it happens when we're in a very refined, sensitive state of vulnerability and it can really be very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. So it's better that we prepare ourselves for these things earlier on and get interested in the reality of selfishness, not just the concept of it, don't just think about it, but learn to be able to read it in our whole body-mind. What does me and my way feel like? If somebody contradicts me in the course of a conversation, I'm pontificating about my amazing opinions on something or other, blah, 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 and then somebody comes in and contradicts me. What does that feel like? Do we get hot? Start to sweat and struggle to contain the impulse to say something back to them? Or or do we just kind of snap back at them with some disrespectful counter-statement? Well, if we've got ourselves sufficiently well-established with mindfulness and restraint and wise reflection, then we can be there for that. We can see right there and then in the moment we're about to create a problem for ourselves and for others. Where is it coming from? From the commitment to me and my way, from selfishness. And every time we see it, that's not something bad happening, that's good. And this is also really important to prepare ourselves to. When we see ourselves being selfish, you want to put your hands together and unchecked and say, thank goodness I've seen that. <laughs> 
If I didn't see that, goodness knows, I could be following it, I could be projecting it, I could be spewing it out onto the world. Seeing our selfishness is a blessing. Indulging in selfishness is not a blessing, but seeing it, when we can see it, it takes a lot of effort to be able to see it. It takes a lot of skill to be able to see it. I remember my first year when I was living as a monk with a teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Tate, and there was another Western monk there. And, um, and he was doing very well in his meditation, having some wonderful, inspiring, peaceful states of mind. And he was describing this to Ajahn Tate, and Ajahn Tate praised him and told him he was doing exceptionally well. And, of course, he was pleased to hear that and went off back to his meditation hut and continued with his sitting and walking meditation. And, and then a few days later, he came to see me, and he was in a really bad state. And I wondered what had happened to him. And he described to me how he had, after receiving all that praise from Ajahn Tate, got completely lost in the pleasure of being praised and just fed into his conceited view of himself as being better than the other monks. And then after a couple of days, he saw it, and in that moment of seeing it, it was so offensive to see. It was so painful to see self-conceit. Well, it took him quite a while before he realized what a blessing that was. That's, that's 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 a good indicator you know, if you've got enough steadiness of mind, enough mindfulness, enough presence, enough interest to be able to really read the whole body-mind well enough in the moment when conceited selfishness is about to arise or has arisen, but you see it and you feel the consequences, that's when letting go happens. That's when we can be free from it. That's good news. Seeing our selfishness is good news. Now, if we're addicted to pleasure and addicted to having a good time and we have a kind of slightly new age approach to practice and thinking, again, that it's just love and light that we need more of, and there may be something like a real moment of suffering like conceited view or the pain of selfishness. When we receive the gift of really seeing that in the moment, and the opportunity for letting go, we miss it. So that's, again, that discourse I was referring to earlier, the Mahamangala Sutta. The Buddha talks about the the unshakable heart. When the heart and mind is prepared with being able to read sufficiently to see the dynamic as it's happening, then... When, as it said in that verse, put us a lokadamehi. In other words, when, when you're blown around by the eight worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honor and insignificance. When these eight worldly winds blow us around, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honor and insignificance. The heart is unshakable. But that's only because we've done the preparation, because we're no longer completely addicted, caught up and fooled by the apparent attraction of me and my way. 
And then the rest of that stanza goes, Aso Kang Wirajang Kiamang, which means griefless, dustless, secure. This is where true self-existent well-being exists, is in the consciousness that is no longer fooled by the temptation to cling, to contract, to constrict. Whether agreeable or disagreeable sensations, impressions, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions arise, we're not fooled by it. For those beings who can see in such a way, they remain in a company, unshakable, griefless, dustless, secure. And so how does generosity play a part in this? And that teaching Ajahn Chah gave, in cultivating generosity, we cleanse our hearts of selfishness. Well, in the process of studying the self-delusion, we can see that this movement, this contraction, is something that we're doing. Me is a, is a constriction. And so we counter it. So we open up. We give. Giving counteracts the compulsive taking, contracting. And again, that's, of course, at this stage just a concept, but if we know how to read our body-mind adequately, then we're able to maybe take that contemplation deeper and start to feel it. In the very beginning, we can reflect on moments of generosity in the past. When we, If you think about if you were having a conversation with somebody and they contradicted you and, and instead of countering them and whacking them down with some humiliating piece of counter-argument, you allow the other person to win. Even though you feel quite sure you're right, you don't engage the momentum of I have to be right. You allow. You give away. You lose. Learning to lose is a great discipline. Really skillful practice, learning to lose an argument, yeah. learning to be seen as a fool yeah. instead of always having to win. Yeah. That's actually an act of generosity. Yeah. Of course, there are other acts of generosity where we might choose to pay attention to somebody who uh, needs a listening ear, you know, somebody who's suffering and pleased to be listened to and received in a non-judgmental way to offer them our attention tremendously beneficial it's not always necessarily easy and if we're used to being the smart aleck used to being the one who's got all the solutions and all the information and we like having our opinions listened to then you know when somebody's offloading their suffering, you know, we're busy inwardly preparing our solution to their problem. So, well, what you need to do is this. Uh, have you tried that? And Well, I did this and that fixed it. And we can be not listening, not receiving, not there for the person 
who's sharing their struggle with us in, in a way that really benefits them. We're selfishly preparing our solution so we can sound good, look good. Well, if we ever catch ourselves doing that, we think, well, you know, that's not, that's not very beautiful. What is beautiful yeah, is offering of our open-hearted sensitivity, being available for that other person, inhibiting that mental tendency to come in with the solution, to fix them. It can be a sense of habit whereby if somebody starts sharing their struggles, we have to feel like we want to fix them. And is that really what they're asking for? Is that really what's going to genuinely bring them benefit? Well, if we're able to read the body-mind adequately, maybe we'll question the assumption that we need to fix them and that's what they're asking for and we'll inhibit it. But as I say, like listening to a Dhamma talk, it's a training that can be done whereby inhibit the tendency to agree and disagree, to pick and choose, to accept and reject, to push and pull. We can inhibit these tendencies and be simply present for, sensitively receptive by way of experiment. Again, it's not colluding with, it's not abdicating the sense of being responsible, it's just being just that, receptive. So when Ajahn Shah gives this teaching, uh, in cultivating generosity, we cleanse our hearts of selfishness. Uh, as I started off by saying, we can hear it as a piece of information and we can think about it and we can think what a good idea that is or maybe we can think that, oh, well, now I, you know, if I'm too generous, people will just trample on me and treat me like a doormat and I've got to stand my ground and it's just thinking, thinking, thinking. And it never really gets past a certain point. But if we really want to hear these teachings, well, we listen to them and then we stop thinking. We feel, what does it feel like? We ask ourselves the question, what is, what is generosity how does generosity affect the body-mind? When I remember moments of generosity, when I remember moments of selfishness, very interesting. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Yes.